Last week, we uh, started a two-week series, just kind of taking a short break from Galatians before we go back and wrap up our look at that epistle. And we talked about the office of the elder. Now, some people think that talking about church governance is just a big bore, that it's not that important, that as long as the church has some form of structure, that's good enough. But really, church governance is important, and it's one of those subjects that from time to time we do need to take a look at, because our desire is to walk in step with God's Spirit and follow the precepts of His Word. And when we follow the wisdom of Scripture, we're blessed. Amen? But when we follow our own devices, we're not blessed. We in fact, if you're looking at the church, sometimes we put ourselves in a position where we make church life tougher than it needs to be. And sometimes it's because even though our intentions are good, we end up kind of mucking things up and building layer upon layer upon layer of bureaucracy. It's uh, kind of the tendency of mankind. Have you noticed that? Did you notice or did you know that the number one largest employer in the world is the United States federal government. That shouldn't be, friends. But that's a sermon for another day. <laughs> but yeah, we, we just have a tendency to do that, right? And so we want to follow the precepts of the scriptures. Frequently, churches that are otherwise healthy might suffer from infighting and conflict due to problems that are stemming from burdensome and unbiblical structures. All right, let me see if I can turn this thing off so it quits shutting itself down on me. Holly, that'll be your new job to remind me to do this. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks. Get a millennial. <laughs> They'll help you. <laughs> all right, so am I all set then? It's black. Oh, there we go. Okay, so we began by identifying two leadership offices in the church. Uh, these are offices that Christ has established, and last week we talked about the first one, the elder. The Greek word here is, <laughs> thanks, presbyteros, presbyteros. And actually, the office of the elder is a single office with three names, and the, the names that are given to it are elder, overseer, and pastor. And all three terms are used interchangeably to describe the same individual and to describe the same office. We saw that the qualifications for the elder are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and then also over in Titus chapter 1. And we won't take the time to look at those today as we did that last week. But we also discussed the responsibility of pastoral leadership. Feeding, nurturing, guarding, and guiding the flock. But we also saw that this is a job too big for one man, that it is a plurality of elders that the scriptures really sets forth. Nearly every time elders used in the New Testament, it's in the plural form. And typically, New Testament churches were led by a plurality of elders. So let me just give you a few examples. The scripture is filled with examples of churches that were uh, led by plurality of elders. Judea and the surrounding area, their churches were led by elders. The church in Jerusalem, the churches of Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the churches on the island of Crete, the churches in Pontus, 
the churches of Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were led by a plurality of elders. And so plurality of elders is the typical form of local church governance. So elder then is that first leadership office that Christ established for his church. And that brings us to today's subject, the office of the deacon. This is the second office that Christ established, and it was established in response to a crisis that was taking place in the church of Jerusalem. It was back in Acts chapter 6, and it involved the church's benevolence ministry to widows. Now, at that time in history, there was no social program. And so the widows, if they didn't have family, they were completely dependent upon the church. And there were two benevolence programs that the church was using at that time, and they came right out of Judaism. They came right out of the Jewish culture and the Jewish customs. Every Friday, some men would go out into the marketplace, and they would go house to house, and they would take up a collection for the poor and for the needy. And then they would visit the homes of resident widows that were among them, and they would give them enough money to purchase 14 meals. So two meals a day for a week. And that happened every Friday. But then in addition to that, there was a second program. Every day, these men would go out into the marketplace and into the homes, and they would collect food and drink to give to the non-resident widows and the transients. And so these were people that had just recently come to the area and they were in need and they were living in other people's homes. And so they would bring the, the benevolence to them where they were living. Well, the problem is seen in Acts chapter 6, beginning there in verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. How cool. Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And what an impact that had that even a good number of the Jewish priests now were becoming Christians. So these Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in this daily distribution. Hellenistic widows. These were the Greek-speaking Jewish widows. And they uh, had come in, now were uh, living in Jerusalem, but they were being overlooked. And you can imagine why that happened. I'm, I'm sure that it was unintentional. They're out there in the community. They're living with people because they are, you know, displaced, now having moved to Jerusalem. And the natural associations that they're going to make are going to be with other Greek-speaking Jews. And so it's very easy then in this great massive church, I mean, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 converts. So from day one, it's a megachurch. And now these 12 apostles are trying to manage the whole thing. 
and it's more than they can manage. And so it creates this issue where the Greek-speaking Jews are being overlooked in this daily distribution. So, the solution. The church is to identify seven men to manage this ministry. But notice that the congregation is involved in the process. Names were selected. I'm sure that discussion was had. And then seven were identified and set apart for this ministry. Was it successful? Absolutely. In fact, there were two main uh, solutions, two results. First, the ministry need was satisfied. And then secondly, the elders were able to give their attention to the ministry of the word and prayer. So the elders were freed up at that point to continue their oversight of the, the church and its spiritual needs while the deacons managed those practical ministries. It reminds me a whole lot of Moses in the wilderness. He's out there, and he's got all this great mass of people, a million plus, and uh, he is getting bogged down and burned out, and he just doesn't have enough time. There's not enough hours in the day. And so he takes the advice of Jethro, and there are elders that are appointed, and the responsibilities are divvied up, and others share the load and provide assistance to Moses. So, what about the qualification then of these deacons? Well, it's found in Acts 6 and 3 and 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And I've just listed these on the, uh, I almost said on the board, on the screen there. First of all, they are above reproach. That these are men that live a life that is above reproach. Husband of one wife, that is to say that they are sexually pure. Now, this isn't speaking directly about divorce here. It's speaking about sexual purity. How do I know that? Because you could put a, a person in the office of deacon and they could be addicted to pornography and they would not meet this qualification because they are no longer a one-woman man. They have committed adultery in their hearts. And I would say that as long as that sin has rulership and reign in their life, they've disqualified themselves. Amen. Husband of one wife. Temperate. They're not given to excess. Being alert, being watchful. They're prudent. So these are self-disciplined. They're serious about spiritual things. They're respectable. So they would live an ordered life, an organized life. They are diligent towards their duties and diligent towards their responsibilities, living in a respectable way. They're hospitable, so they're not cliquish, right? They open their homes to strangers, and uh, there is an attitude of generosity you know, with regards to their hospitality. They're not pugnacious, so they don't settle their disagreements with their fists, right? But they're cool-headed, cool-headed. They're gentle, so they're considerate and forbearing. Peaceable, this means they're not quarrelsome. They're not just looking for a fight or looking for a reason to disagree all the time. Rather, they are peacemakers. They're not covetous, so they're free of the love of money free of materialism, that that does not dominate their lives. And they manage their own households well. And I would see that not only in relationships, but with resources too. Managing their households with respect and with a spiritual priority. And then they're spiritually seasoned. So these are not new converts. Finally, they are reputable. They're living a reputable life. They have a good reputation both within the church and without the church. 
Now, I want you to notice that these qualifications for the office of deacon are identical to the qualifications of elders with one exception, and I would say actually with two. But the obvious one is that the office of the deacon, there's no mention there of them being able to teach the Word of God. Whereas with the office of elder, that is an expectation. And so the thought is that there is a mastery of Christian doctrine, that they understand how to rightly divide the word of truth. Why? Well, because the elder is supposed to not only teach and preside in the teaching of the church, but to also be able to refute those who teach false doctrine. It's a very important part of the equation because we live in a day and age where a lot of misinformation is being preached in the name of Jesus. And so the church needs to have spiritual leaders that can stand up against that and say, this is wrong and here's why it's wrong from the scriptures and to be able to preside over doctrine and spiritual affairs. Now, the deacons are certainly supposed to, uh, you know, be seasoned Christians. And so along with that, you would, you would say, well, these are people that do have a handle on God's word, apparently, you know, obviously. They know about salvation. They've experienced the grace of God. They're growing in their relationship with the Lord. But they're not tasked with the responsibility of leading by teaching. Certainly some deacons are gifted in teaching, and they will, just based on those gifts the Lord's given them. But it's not a qualification of their office. But the second distinction, I would say, elders, also known as pastors, must be men. According to the Scripture, they must be men. Now, I know that flies in the face of what's happening in a whole lot of denominations in our world. But just because people do something doesn't make it right. This is what the Lord has set up for His church. Whereas deacons can be men or deaconesses, which are women. Phoebe being the prime example in Romans chapter 16. Now, that may alarm you. And you may say, wait a minute, Pastor Greg, we have never had deaconesses in our church. That's true. But let me say, I believe the reason for that is that our deacons have been serving as elders and not really as deacons. They've been serving as elders. We've called them deacons, but they have been occupying many of the responsibilities of elders. So we look to the scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Well, he's talking about men. Yeah, but he's giving the qualifications for the deacons. And then he continues in the very next verse. Women, and I believe here implied women deacons or deaconesses, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now some would say, no, he's talking about the deacons' wives there. Well, that's peculiar because it would seem, if that were the case, that he would also talk about elders' wives when he gives the qualifications of elders, and he does not say anything at all there. And so I believe the pattern here is that he's speaking of deaconesses. So this passage, I believe, qualifies 
deaconesses as meeting those qualifications. It would seem strange to include women in this qualification for deacons if the passage is not saying, yeah, there are going to be some women who serve in this capacity as well, so let us address them and let us speak to their qualifications too. In fact, this is how the early church fathers interpreted such verses. And listen, for the first 1,000 years of church history, women served as deaconesses for 10 centuries. The practice waned during the time of the great schism between the Church of the East and the Church of the West. But John Calvin reinstituted the office of the deaconess during his ministry. He saw the office of the deaconess as a scriptural office, and he had an order of deaconesses in Geneva that were made up primarily of the older widows. So, the office of the deaconess, I believe, has scriptural support. It was recognized for the first half of church history and reinstituted under the reforms of Calvin. And yet the ruling office of elder and pastor is reserved to men. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, he's not talking about the marketplace. He's talking about the church. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. As in all sound scriptural interpretation, context is king. We've got to look at the context. Because if we don't look at the context, you're going to say, well, then what we did yesterday was wrong. Beth Moore shouldn't be teaching. Right? Look at the context. And the context is speaking about the church's functions. It's speaking, I believe, here about the church's structure and order. The context is the functioning of the local church. It's not relegated, however, to some unique situation in Ephesus that Paul is addressing or to the cultural values in the system of that day. So in other words, Paul is not forbidding women to be elder, uh, ruling elders in the church because of some cultural mores back then in the first century. How do I know that? Because he gives the rationale for what he says in the very next verse, chapter, or verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So in order to establish this uh, fundamental rule, Paul reaches all the way back to the book of Genesis. And he equates that to the function of the home and God's model for leadership in the home. That it would be male leadership with female support and assistance. That that was how God designed it. And that model of the family is to extend in the functioning of the church. So are women forbidden to teach in the church? Answer, absolutely not. They are not forbidden to teach in the church. There are many opportunities for gifted women to teach in the church. Again, context. The context of this passage is the functioning of the church. In other words, it's talking about authority in the church. It's talking about spiritual oversight of the congregation. Church rulership is the office of the elder. 
And the distinctive qualification of the elder is that the elder must be able to teach. And that qualification separates the elder from the deacon. And so elders and pastors are the primary preachers and teachers of the church. They rule in issues of doctrine. They set the spiritual direction for the church. They oversee the functions of the church. So yes, women can teach in the church. However, they are not to sit in authority over the church. They're not to serve as elders and pastors in the church. They are not to determine issues regarding doctrine in the church. They are not to rule in the church. Why? I don't know. That's just the way God established it. And I'm sure God has his reasons. But have you ever thought that perhaps one of the reasons is that if women were to assume this role of ruling elders in the body, that it may turn off men and they may say, it's a women's club. That is a possibility. Again, I don't know what God's reasons were. Certainly there are women that are very gifted leaders. I think of the Iron Lady, Maggie Thatcher. She was one tough cookie. <laughs> but as regards his church, he says the men will lead and the women will support and they will give encouragement and, and assistance. And yet many denominations have disregarded this biblical instruction. And rather than following God, they have followed the world. Rather than submitting to Scripture, they have surrendered to the culture. And in disregarding this biblical teaching on church governance, listen, they have opened the floodgate of compromise. They have forsaken the Bible. They have adopted values of the culture. What's the result? Some of these denominations have, deni have denied the necessity of personal salvation. They've denied the virgin birth of Christ. They've denied the sinless life of Christ. They have denied the atoning sacrifice of Jesus' death. They have denied the resurrection of our Lord. Some are, <clears throat> some are even ordaining heretics and unbelievers to gospel ministry. Hear me, ordaining people who don't even believe in the vicarious death of Christ. Ordaining them to gospel ministry. Something that you may not be aware of, but I share this news with you with a heavy heart. This is not a joke. There is a growing movement of atheistic clergy in our country. Did you hear me? There are pastors all across our land that are coming out of the closet as atheists who don't even believe in God. But they don the clerical robes and they stand behind a pulpit every week to preach because it's their paycheck and because they believe that the church is a good social club for the betterment of humankind. Don't even believe in God. It's a sad day for the church. How did we get there? Well, I believe that one of the ways that we got there, not speaking of our local church, but we got there as a church universal. 
by disregarding the Word of God. Their spiritual bankruptcy is not surprising because the fundamental problem is that they've denied the inspiration of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible, the authority of the Bible. And whenever we disregard the clear teaching of the Scripture, listen, we are on the pathway to destruction. So on this issue of not one... uh, On this issue at large, I believe that it's not one of teaching per se, but rather of exercising authority in the church. Many women are gifted teachers. There are many opportunities for them to exercise that gift in the church. Yet God reserves the authoritative office of the elder and pastor for qualified men who have demonstrated a desire to follow that call and to dedicate their life to it. And if you don't like that, take it up with God. I'm simply the messenger. He is the one. Christ is the head of the church. And he's the one who establishes the rules of order in his body. And he does it for his own reasons. So what then are the duties of deacons? Well, the first duty I put on there is to serve. This is the natural duty of the deacon because the word diakonos means servant. It means servant. So when you say the board of deacons, you could be saying the board of servants. When you say this person is a deacon or a deaconess, you could be saying they are a servant. That is what they are called to do. And of course, we saw the first example of this on a widespread scale was in Acts chapter 6. This issue of benevolence and the benevolence not making its way to the Greek-speaking Jewish widows. And they're collecting the money, but the people aren't getting it. So the first example given then of service in a large-scale way in the church is when the ministry of the diaconate was established, the ministry of the servants. The principle is... Managing the church's ministries. Now that makes sense. When you think of any organization of of any size, you typically have leadership and management and workers or employees, right? The three areas. In fact, in the corporate world, they would say strategic management, tactical management, operational management. But when you come into the church, you see something very similar to that, right? You see the office of the elder and pastor providing leadership. You see the office of the deacons providing managerial oversight of the ministries of the church. And you see the laity, where we believe that every member is a minister. That every member is to be engaged in ministry, using their gifts in service to the church and in honor of the Lord. So they are to serve. Secondly, they are to manage, to manage the church's ministries. So we see this example of the benevolence being managed by the deacons in Acts chapter 6. In our church, what would that look like? Well, things like Awana, things like Sunday school, Christian education, things like our outreach events, our music ministries, our practical ministries that they would be uh, overseen by the deacons. And then to administrate, to administrate. And this, I would say, involves more of the practical issues. Now, back when this was happening originally, the church did not have a church facility, right? They met in the temple and they met in each other's homes, going house to house. 
God's blessed the church. And now the church has magnificent facilities. We've got, you know, sanctuaries and we have Sunday school classrooms and we've got gymnasiums and all sorts of tools that can be used to facilitate ministry and to reach out to our community. And my encouragement for our church body is in the years ahead, let's look for more and more ways that we can just engage this wonderful facility that God has given us to meet the needs not only in our own body, but in this community at large. Amen? Well, that means that there's got to be someone that helps us with that. I would see that as a ministry of the deacons. And like I said, our trustees have been serving in that capacity because our deacons have been serving in the capacity of elders. And yet the job has to get done, does it not? So as servants, deacons manage. And as leaders, elders oversee. But if deacons are to function effectively, they must have a servant's heart. They must see themselves as assistance to the elders. You see, the deacon's task is not to set the direction of the church. The deacon's task is not to determine how the resources will be invested. This is why we have elders. And this is why John and I would like to see some lay elders come and join us on that team. That that is the description biblically given for the responsibility of these men to lead the church. The task of the deacon to receive the marching orders from the elders, to manage the ministries of the church in order to meet its objectives. The great commission and the great commandments. But that doesn't mean that deacons are the slaves of the church and it doesn't mean that the deacons are the slaves of the elders. It doesn't mean that the deacons have no voice. It doesn't mean that the deacons' input is not desired. Listen, all effective leadership encourages open communication, encourages helpful dialogue, encourages input from every concerned member. But it also recognizes the clear lines of authority that have been established in the Scripture. And so that brings us to another uh, juicy subject, authority in the church. <laughs> We're just hitting them all. <laughs> <clears throat> authority in the church. Obviously, the first thing that we need to say is Jesus is the head, right? Who's the head of the church? Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. Reminds me of the story of a pastor who ordered some clothing from his favorite Hong Kong retailer. Uh, when the response came from the tailor, it was addressed to the owner of First Baptist Church. <laughs> Who's going to open that package? <laughs> well, this is for the Lord. We'll have to wait till he gets back. Because there's only one owner of the church, only one head of the church, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. The elders are not the head of the church. The deacons are not the head of the church. The pope is not the head of the church. The archbishop of Canterbury is not the head of the church. The, president of the, the presbyters of the Presbyterian Church, they're not the head, nor is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. None of them are the head of the church. There's one head, and his name is Jesus. Can you say amen? amen. Colossians 1.18, he, Christ, is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in 
everything. He is the head of the church. And man, that makes me feel good. (laughs) Because my shoulders are not broad enough to carry even a local church. But His are. His are. Christ is the head of the church. There's only one head of the church. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Good Shepherd. And it is by His precious Spirit that He calls and He saves the elect whom the Father has given Him. Christ, the head of the church. What else can we say about authority in the church? Well, we have to talk about the Bible. For the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible is not just a beautiful book. The Bible is not just a spiritual treasure or a a religious library. The Bible is the authoritative Word of God. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. In other words, what it says goes. So we preach the Word. We teach its precepts. We obey its directives. And we do that, listen, when it is in season and when it is out of season. We do it when the culture agrees with it And we do it when the culture stands in opposition to it. For we will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ how we have handled the Word that He has given to His church. Can you say amen? And the Bible tells us that Christ has established two offices for the governance of His body, the church. Elders who are appointed as leaders to give spiritual oversight to the church and deacons who are servant managers who lead by serving. I like to look at it like this. Elders serve by leading. Deacons lead by serving. Two complementary roles of church leadership. And those offices are authoritative in their functions. What do I mean? Those who occupy those offices exercise authority as delegates of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has delegated authority to them for the proper administration of their office. What does that mean? They have no inherent authority of their own. Hear me. Elders and deacons have no native authority. They have no inherent authority. Their authority is not based on their personality. It's not based on their gifts. It's not based on their talents. All of their authority is derived from Christ. And that means that they only speak authoritatively when they speak the Word of God. That means my opinion is my opinion. And my opinion has no authority based on its own merits. I speak authoritatively only as I speak in accordance with and in harmony with 
the revealed Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. Period. I don't have authority to speak. Somebody comes and says, Pastor Greg, what, what uh, color carpeting should we have for the sanctuary? That was a little hint there. <laughs> Just thought I'd get that in there. That was a little hint for the future. <laughs> what color should the carpeting be in the sanctuary? You know what I'm likely to say? I don't know. Go talk to the people that are gifted in that area, right? And if I have an opinion, it's just that, an opinion. I can't speak authoritatively on that kind of a thing because I'm the pastor. And I refuse to speak authoritatively on those kinds of issues. It would be wrong. It would be a miscarriage of my office. So if someone wants my opinion, I'll say, well, my, in my opinion... Blah, blah, blah. But that's not gospel. <laughs> and so you might you know, choose a carpeting that I wouldn't even prefer. Well, so what? Get over it, right? That's Interior decorating is not my strength. It's her strength. <laughs> it's funny. People will say, you know, you guys have uh, this interior uh, decorating business on the side. Well, first of all, it's my wife's business. That's her talent. That's her education. I hope I'm not embarrassing you. I'm sorry. Probably should have cleared this first, shouldn't I? <laughs> but that's what I do. I just say, well, go talk to her, right? It, men, don't we oftentimes do that when it comes to matters of our household? What do you think about this? Well, I, you know, let me go ask my wife. She's kind of gifted in that area. And she'll likely, you know, give some really sage advice. And you learn over the years it's wise to listen. Listen, the Bible says there is wisdom in a multitude of counsel. But don't ask me for an authoritative opinion on those things that don't have anything to do with Scripture. Because my authority is a derived authority. It is a delegated authority. I'm deputized to represent the Lord in this office. Which means the only way I can speak authoritatively is by speaking those things that are in alignment with God's Word. That is the authority. Men don't have authority of their own in the church. So what about the congregation then? This is the other piece of authority in the church. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Speaking of Christ, He personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. That's why. These offices... And these gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, have been given to the church to equip the saints for what? The work of ministry. That's why we say every member is a minister. It's not just a nice little saying to throw around, but it's because we believe that that's what the Scripture teaches. That when you are saved, God is about equipping you, developing you spiritually, maturing you for the work of ministry. This is why Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Even the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? And if you were to look at that Greek, it's, it's as you're going, preach the gospel. In other words, this is to be our lifestyle, that as we are out there in the field, 
there are people that you'll have the opportunity to minister to that will never cross my path. As you are out there, having been equipped, now do the work of the ministry so that we can engage the whole body. When God saves you, He gifts you. And He gifts you for the betterment of His body. And when you sit on the sidelines, the body hurts. But when you get plugged in, and you get off the bench, and you get out there in the field, then the body is able to experience the fullest expression of its ministry to this broken world. Finally, this brings us to another juicy topic, a very important topic, accountability. We must have accountability in the body of Christ. All believers are equal in Christ. Turn and tell your neighbor that. All believers are equal in Christ. That means that there are no black Christians and white Christians and red Christians and yellow Christians. Remember that little children's church verse? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. As far as God is concerned, there is one race, the human race. The human race, that's it. If you don't like that, then you need to search your heart and pray that God will help overcome those prejudices. Because there's one race, right? We believe we descended from Adam or we don't. We believe that we descended from the family of Noah or we don't. Amen? If we did, let's hold fast to it and let's preach it. And let's set an example for the rest of the world. So all believers are equal in Christ. In the kingdom of God, there's no big me, little you. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us have sinned. All of us are in need of a Savior. God is no respecter of persons, the Bible tells us. There is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God with regards to value. And that brings us to the next point. No hierarchy of importance. The book of Acts shows us clearly God is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. In Romans chapter 10, and in a multitude of other places, the Apostle Paul says that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. One Savior saved us. By His Spirit, He baptized us into one body. Broke down the barrier that divided us. And now we are one in Christ. So the offices of the church do not constitute a hierarchy of worth, a hierarchy of importance, a pecking order of value. They simply facilitate the smooth administration of the church's mission. That's why. That's why. Since our authority is not inherent, but is delegated, since our authority does not derive from personality or gifts or skills, then it can only be properly administered by delegation. That means we are accountable to the Lord and we are accountable to each other. Amen. We are to submit to one another. It's one of the ways God displays His glory in the church. That brings us to some practical measures of accountability. What's it going to look like? We begin with the plurality of elders, not an elder dictating this is what we're going to do, but a plurality of elders. 
a plurality of elders. And that means that there needs to be open discussion among the eldership. And there are going to be times when I may be very passionate about something and I, you know, strongly weigh in on it. And sometimes the guys will go along and sometimes they'll be like, eh, get over it. <laughs> Hopefully they won't say it like that, but you know, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. When it comes to issues uh, regarding the scripture, then I have a responsibility to hold their feet to the fire and they have a responsibility to hold my feet to the fire. But there needs to at least begin with this idea of an open discussion among eldership and an intentional submission on all of our parts to the Word of God. Let's submit to the Word. Let's submit to the Word. I would fully expect that if I were to stand behind this pulpit and teach anything that contradicted the Word of God, that you know, in any way cast aspersion on the gospel of Jesus Christ or, or held his sacrifice in contempt or said something like, well, you know, Jesus is just one way to get to heaven. There are more than one ways. I would fully expect the elders to call for my resignation because if they did not, they would be miscarrying their responsibilities. Their responsibility is to the head of the church who is Jesus. And how does Jesus show us his will? By his revealed word. That's how. So a plurality of elders. Secondly, cooperative support of the deacons. Cooperative support of the deacons. Notice that one of the qualifications of being a deacon is you must be peaceable. Peaceable. Peacemaker. Not argumentative. That you don't feel this need to always play devil's advocate but rather you have a servant's heart, a desire to implement the church's vision to the glory of God. No private agenda. It's not your calling. It's not your office. But rather, to be an assistant, to cooperate with the elders in the functioning of your office. And then it means also the congregational involvement in ministry. Like I said earlier, every member is a minister. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to lay around and do nothing. It's not what it says, is it? It says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And listen, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's really amazing that God has prepared good works even ahead of time. And one of the beauties of being a Christian is discovering the good works that he's prepared for you to do. Talk about satisfaction and fulfillment in life to say, wow, God really used me this, this week. I was used for his glory. Uh, what satisfaction that brings to me. Ephesians 4, 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the focus is that Christ's giving each believer of his very grace. You're uniquely graced with Christ's gift. You are not an accident in the body of Christ. You received his grace. Christ gave it to you in the measure suited to you. His good purpose for you is that you would use that then to bless his body. So every 
member being involved in ministry, each one identifying and using his or her gifts. But then that also brings us to congregational involvement in administration. What do I mean? Well, specifically, this is what we're really going to call upon you to do, to pray about and to help us with. Revisions in our Constitution, revisions in our bylaws, uh, looking at our statement of faith, uh, looking at the approval of the annual budget. That's something that the congregation needs to do, right? As we move forward, the congregation needs to continue to have a voice in approving our annual budget. Our congregation needs to be involved in the calling and dismissing of pastors. Our congregation needs to have a voice in major projects like building expansions and issues involving the infrastructure and purchasing and selling of land and real estate property. Church needs to be involved in that process, needs to have a voice. You say, well, yeah, but Pastor Greg, last week you said there's no record of a congregational vote in the New Testament. That's true. There's no actual record of a vote, but I do believe that there's a precedent that established it. What do I mean? Okay, the congregation selected the first deacons, did they not? We just read that. That the apostles didn't even get involved at that level and say, we need to pray about this and select. No, what did they do? They went to the congregation and said, you choose these people and here are the qualifications that they need to meet. And so there was some way that they identified them there was some discussion, no doubt, that was involved. Do they, do they meet the qualifications? Well, I don't know. What, what about Joe? Does he meet these qualifications? Well, you know, there was some sort of a dialogue that took place, obviously, because they then presented these seven that they'd come up with. So whether or not there was an actual, you know, right on the ballot, fold it, put it in the, in the uh, basket kind of a vote or not, we don't know what the actual... Uh, you know, the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The process. We don't know, thank you. We don't know the actual process that they used, but we can look at it and say, obviously, there was a process. And so when you bring a congregation together of our size in order to just facilitate good order, we say, well, let's ad adopt Robert's Rules of Orders. This seems to be something people in our culture are familiar with. It helps us. But listen, it's just a tool. Right? Robert's Rules of Orders is not the Bible. Our Constitution and bylaws are not the Bible. They are tools. And so we want to use those tools. We want to use them effectively. But I do believe that we can recognize at least a precedent where the church was involved in something as significant as the selection of the deacons. So they had a voice, and they need to. In a practical way, I would say, that's just good leadership too, is it not? In good leadership, you want healthy feedback from those that you are leading. And obviously it has to be, you know, sifted through the Word of God so that you are careful to not do anything that would in any way jeopardize the truth. But oftentimes the issues that we're talking about only have a secondary spiritual uh, impact anyway. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, whether or not we're going to meet on uh, Sunday morning at 11 o'clock or keep it at 1030, well, that's not really a spiritual issue. It's a practical issue called time. The spiritual part of it is we're going to meet. 
we're going to assemble together for the building up of the saints and the sharing of the gospel. So, last week we talked about the elder, today we talked about the deacon. As pastor of First Baptist Church, again, I would ask our membership to prayerfully consider transitioning to the elder deacon model of church governance in, in more clarity. Why? Because I do believe that it's the biblical model that Jesus has established. It was the typical form of church governance that we see in the New Testament. When we follow the wisdom of the scriptures, we're blessed. And when we follow our own devices, sometimes, sometimes, we make church life more tough than it needs to be. Amen? So receive that in a spirit of love. And uh, I'm going to ask when the time comes and you've had opportunity to have all of your questions answered, that you will vote your conscience. Vote your conscience. And then we, together as a church body, will accept that result as being the Lord speaking through his church. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you again for a day to meet with our fellow brothers and sisters and to lift high the name of Jesus and specifically today to be able to look at this uh, structure of the church that you have given that we might be most effective in carrying out the Great Commission and encouraging the living out of the Great Commandments. So Father, we do want to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to carry out this work of gospel ministry, seeing people one to the faith and discipled in the faith. Father, we do all of that even as we anticipate your imminent return. Father, now as we prepare our hearts to give back to you an offering as a portion of that which you've given to us, we pray that you would bless these and that you would give us wisdom to know how best to invest them. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. God bless you as you give to the work of the Lord.